0: Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Uh, just to come clean in terms of how I'm viewing all of this and feeling about this as we embark on this series, uh, I've got to confess, I am very excited about this, partly because it was my idea and the preaching team to do it, and it's taken the best part of a year to persuade least one other member of the preaching team to get on uh, with this agenda. Uh, You can work out which one it is uh, later in your own time. But I am incredibly excited to be starting this series in the book of Revelation. Just to be clear, it's not because I think all of a sudden we as a church need this book. In all honesty, we've needed this book for the last 2,000 years. Uh, We're not preaching this book because we see something happening around us right now that suddenly makes this book relevant. Yes, Revelation is remarkably relevant for this moment. It will help us understand what Jesus is doing right now. But more than that, It's going to help us lift our gaze above and beyond our current situation with all the uncertainty and all the confusion, all the dread that's around us and through it all catch a glimpse of what is going on right now from heaven's perspective. As we're going to discover perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, Revelation expands our imagination to see how God is at work in the world in a way that is designed to fill us with hope and courage, faith and excitement. And, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know where this is heading, cover your ears. I was going to say, or leave the room. Don't leave the room. Just cover your ears if you don't want to know where this is heading. What we're going to see is that all is not lost. In fact, quite the opposite. All is already won. Jesus is on the throne. His enemies are conquered and history is heading towards an inevitable conclusion. And so, As we start working through this book, we're going to get this stunning picture of Jesus and where Jesus is taking us, and I simply want to invite you to come with him. And as we go, my prayer is that we would become more and more captivated by the sheer beauty of Jesus and something of his breathtaking glory, that the things that maybe concern us right now would be put into perspective by the bigger picture of who Jesus is, the victory he's already won, and where his eternal plans and purposes are heading. Where perhaps some of us today would admit we're feeling like we're flagging, we're just a bit downbeat, maybe lacking a bit of vision, possibly wavering a bit in our face, many of us disappointed ever so slightly disillusioned, disconnected, or even if we're doing really well right now, the book of Revelation is like this shot of supernatural steroids that's going to enable us to run and fight and overcome and triumph like never before. But for us to benefit from what this tremendous book has to offer us, What I want to do today is actually take a step back and simply spell out what it is we're reading. Because if we're not clear on that, we could very easily get confused, baffled, distracted, or overwhelmed. And in doing so, miss the message that I think God intends for us to hear. And so, three things... From those opening verses that Beth read to us, three things that I think will keep us from getting sidetracked and will help us to navigate and understand all that's going to follow in the weeks/slash months to come. Okay, first thing to understand: Revelation is a letter. I don't know if you notice that in verse four. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So first and foremost, this is a letter like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In other words, Revelation is written to specific people living in a specific time and a specific place. And so, by implication, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. It's a key message I want to underline, so much so, I'm going to get you to repeat it with me. Okay, so in case you were drifting off at that point, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Say it with me. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Now, you say it without me guiding you through. Perfect. Which is crucially important for us to grasp because I think, if we're being honest, we can sometimes occasionally have this tendency to approach the Bible incredibly individualistically. And so we end up reading ourselves and our current context into the text and view it, viewing it from our own perspective, which causes us to miss the context completely and twist it to mean something it never meant. Now, If we're going to avoid all the weird and wonderful interpretations that are out there, and I assure you there are plenty of weird and wonderful interpretations out there, if we're going to avoid all of that, we've got to start by understanding that Revelation was written for us, but not to us. Which means that understanding the context is vitally important. Important and so let me give you just a little bit of the backdrop to this letter. It was written somewhere between 81 and 96 AD. Some people kind of are very confident it was this year. I've read any number of people very confidently asserting a whole range of dates, largely between those two parameters. Some would go a bit earlier, some slightly later, but largely speaking, and Ed isn't here to check it out with him, he's the one who normally keeps me honest, somewhere between 81 and 96 AD, at a time where the church had already been through several decades of intense persecution. For a period of time... The church was doing remarkably well. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that over and over again, the Lord added to their number. You see 5,000 people here, 10,000 people there. Paul was planting churches left, right, and center all across the ancient world. It was just exploding. And then Nero, in around 65 AD, launches the first wave of persecution against the Christian church, that wasn't simply led by the religious rulers. Faced with this incredibly brutal opposition from governmental powers, the church rallied. They continued to serve the poor, continued to minister in power. They persisted in sharing the gospel, all in the hope that Nero's campaign of terror would fizzle out. But unfortunately, it got worse. Nero gave way to Vespasian, who used Christians famously as human torches. He would dip them in oil and light them on fire to illuminate his grounds. The believers were imprisoned. They were fed alive to animals. They were brutalized in the most horrific ways imaginable. And let's be honest very few if any of us know that level of persecution actually we do have people in the church who have experienced violence got a few who have experienced the death of family and friends for their faith in other countries but the vast majority of us know nothing of this but we have our preferences pressed on we're verbally abused when we speak up on certain issues were perhaps excluded and shut out, but nothing like the level of the recipients of this letter. It's an assault on our liberty, but not on our lives. It's unfair, but it's not life-threatening. The believers that Revelation was written to were living in pretty constant fear, desperately hoping that things would improve, but they get even worse. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed and burnt to the ground. Around about that time, Paul and Peter were both publicly executed. By 92 AD, things had escalated further. The Emperor Domitian ordered all the citizens of Rome to worship him as God. He set up a temple in Ephesus, and refusal to worship him there resulted in instant execution. And so, in a few weeks' time, when we start looking at the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, it's understandable why most of those churches weren't doing so well. I mean, think about it. We've just been asked to get vaccinated, wear masks, and isolate. And I don't mean to be insensitive. I know, actually, it's been way tougher than that for a number of people in the room. So I'm not downplaying how this has impacted our lives, but I think it's fair to say we've struggled to cope at times in the last couple of years, haven't we? Revelation is written to churches that are under immense persecution. And it had been going on for so long that many of the believers in these churches, they knew nothing different. To be a follower of Jesus was very much to put your life on the line. To be a Christian was to remain poor forever, locked out of the economic system, hounded and marginalized, beaten up with no recompense for those who abused you and the constant threat of being killed. This was who the letter of Revelation was written to. And understanding that will help us understand what we're going to read. But secondly, it's not just a letter. Look at verse 3. It's also a prophecy. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Now, just to explain... The heart of biblical prophecy as a genre or as a style of literature is what God is saying to his people in that particular moment in time. It's not just that there's this thing that's going to happen in the future sometime, although certainly that does happen in the Bible. But the whole emphasis in the prophetic books is what God says to his people there and then. And that's another really important part for us to grasp as we study Revelation together. So although John tells us that as a prophecy, the book discloses what must soon take place, it is not written mainly to convey information about the future. In light of what is about to happen, the words are intended to shape the thinking and transform the behavior of the believers in the here and now. And so for us, as we read the words of this prophecy, at times we're going to be tempted to speculate about how it all fits with world history. But the emphasis has got to be always and everywhere on the implications for how we're to be formed, how we're to obey, how we're to live in the good of these words today. The other thing, just to flag up, is that because the majority of us are white Westerners, we tend to think most of the time in a pretty linear way, like this builds on this, which builds on this, which builds on this. But we will trip up if we try to read Revelation like that. Revelation is more like a series of windows that we get to peer into, and rather confusingly, they're not in chronological order. It's more like a film that shows the same scene from the perspective of a range of different characters. And it's only once you piece it all together that you get a clear idea of what is actually happening. And so, we're going to see a vision of history from heaven's perspective, from earth's perspective... And from the church's perspective. Which means the question isn't what happens next, so much as what does John, the author, see next? A number of times, we're going to find them as we work through this, where John says, I turned and saw, or I heard. And we've got to pay extra careful attention at those points because they're like these windows being opened, each one revealing a different picture. Remember, for us but not to us. So just to recap what we've seen, I recognize this is a time, it's more like a lesson uh, but it's preparation, it's putting the foundations in so that in the weeks to come uh, we can benefit from what we're reading. So just to recap, not only is this a letter written to specific people at a specific time and in a specific place, written to them and for us, It is also a prophetic book, not written in a linear chronological fashion, but opening a series of windows that show not what happens next, but what John sees or hears next. And each one of these windows is meant to encourage, strengthen, and bring hope to these oppressed, persecuted believers in the first century. And then through them... There's encouragement, strength, and hope for us too. If you like, Jesus gives us this unique vantage point from which to see the events of world history as they really are. And the point, the purpose of this prophetic insight is to drive out naivety, passivity, fear, defeatism, and confusion and all the while, spur us on to follow our victorious king in our own time and place. One more thing I want to show you, but before we get there, why don't you just turn back to the group you were in kind of a quarter of an hour ago and quickly share, while it's fresh in your mind, okay, what has changed already in your view of the book of Revelation? And be honest, if you think, I knew all of that already, nothing has changed. Well, say that if you wish. But very quickly, what struck you so far? So we've seen a revelation is a letter. It's a prophecy. And then thirdly, I'm particularly proud of this one. You'll be relieved you came here today to learn this. Thirdly, ready for it, revelation is a revelation. For profound stuff. Round of applause for that one. The rest was not... Revelation is a revelation. Verse 1 says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Now, if you were disappointed with that point, this is where I really earn my money. Another word for revelation is apocalypse. Say with me, apocalypse. Apocalypse. And No one said it. Okay, well, okay. Apocalypse. And the purpose of apocalyptic writing is, is to reveal divine mysteries. So the aim of this book is to unveil to the churches it was written to, for us as well, that things are not what they seem. Or to be more precise, they are more than they seem. The problem is, we're not so familiar with the apocalyptic style of writing, are we? It it all seems ever so slightly weird and confusing to us. I mean, we tend to be a little more fact-based in our learning, don't we? So if I give you three clear points, preferably all beginning with the same letter, then you tend to be happy. But if I keep going off on seemingly unrelated tangents with references to dragons and lampstands and bowls and beasts with multiple heads and flying locust scorpions, sooner or later you're probably going to get slightly confused. and When you try to interpret the apocalyptic imagery in Revelation into a simple factual list where the beast is Boris Johnson and the mark of the beast is a vaccine, then you are going to get into all kinds of trouble and miss the point completely. The point of all the imagery isn't simply meant to inform our minds, but to ignite our spirits as, hopefully, our minds do get a little more informed. And so, from a preacher's perspective, it would be so much easier in preparation if John simply wrote a paragraph telling us that a woman gave birth to Jesus He built the church, and the devil is defeated. The end. Because then, we could all take clear notes, we could all nod our heads and think we agree, but it wouldn't necessarily grab hold of us and change us. Writing about the use of imagery in Revelation, I found this quote from a guy called Daryl Johnson really helpful. He says this, Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. In turn, that informs the intellect and ignites the emotion so, I'm going to put it to the test. I'm going to give you two examples, and I want you to be honest, which one stirs up your emotions more? Okay, exhibit A. I'm looking for ripples of excitement or facial expressions as I read these. Okay, exhibit A. Mary was told that the Holy Spirit would cause her to give birth to a child. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, And some shepherds came, and they worshipped him. That's exhibit A. Okay, exhibit B. There was a great war in heaven, and the dragon awaited to devour the woman and destroy her offspring and wage war against the lamb and his people but God all the time protected his people and drove the beast into the wilderness until the people of God conquered. Looks of horror, shock, amazement, wonder, and just slight bemusement because you maybe drifted off and missed how I set that up. There was a little more reaction, as I intended, to the second example. Those images, they're pretty provocative, aren't they? Like, there's a dragon trying to destroy my family. That makes me want to fight. That there's a beast waging war against this church, trying to wipe it out. I'm not going to sit by passively allowing that to happen. Imagery does that in a way that getting a bunch of kids to act out the nativity and sing Away in a Manger probably doesn't. Now, to be fair, probably, still toying with this one, but probably we still won't turn our next carol service into a riot of dragons and bloody swords. But, Johnny particularly is motivated by that one, it it would be a lot more memorable, wouldn't it? Our guests would certainly never forget. This is why apocalyptic literature is so powerful, it provokes our spirit. It forms our intellect and directs our emotions. It's truth that grabs hold of us and hooks us at the deepest level. Now, all that being said, as well as stirring our imaginations and our emotions, apocalyptic writing is really useful in conveying truths that we have no other reference point for. Like, I think it's hard, isn't it, for us to get our heads around the reality of the unseen spiritual world. But the imagery of Revelation is going to bring it alive to us in glorious technicolor. It's going to open our eyes to things we'd otherwise be blind to, which actually is one of the main reasons I think we really need this book. What many of my black and Asian and Hispanic brothers and sisters around the world where the church incidentally is just exploding right now, what they get that we in the white majority church are often ignorant to is the spiritual battle raging all around us. Listen, we need to wake up to the fact that there is a very real enemy constantly trying to destroy us, constantly trying to distract us Constantly trying to deceive us, constantly trying to steal our joy. And if we've got no idea that that is happening, then we're going to ascribe blame in the wrong direction. I mean, think how easy it would have been for the first church to hate the Romans. But if you know your church history, don't the Romans end up becoming the primary followers of Jesus as the gospel rampantly spreads across the ancient world? See, if everybody is our enemy and there is not an actual enemy behind everything, then the byproduct is we'll be unable to love, we'll be way too consumed with criticism, bitterness, resentment, anger against one another. But if we see that people are actually captured or in bondage then suddenly they're people to love and care for and be shown compassion. I mean, read the Gospels. Isn't that how Jesus operated? What's more, if you have little or no understanding of spiritual dynamics and you you just simply follow the facts and try as hard as you can to be moral people in your own strengths, then you're going to be defeated before you even start. As Peter warns us, We've got an enemy who's like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And if we're not alert to that, we are never going to overcome. And so I think what John's attempting to do in Revelation is just lift the lid on what's going on in the unseen spiritual world. And just to say, most of the time, he's not describing some mysterious future point in history for the main part. What he's describing has already happened or is happening right now. It's like he wants to remove the veil and give us this sneak preview, this glimpse behind the scenes of present reality, where, reassuringly, we see that God is not panicking. And so just to reiterate, I'm not preaching this because things are spiraling out of control things have been like this your whole life that they've been this way for millennia we just couldn't see it but all the time god is on the throne he's the lord he's victorious he's the ruler of the kings of the earth i mean let's not forget after the death the resurrection the ascension of jesus we read that there were a mere 500 followers in the world that's all there was They enjoy 30 years of relative peace, followed by 40 years of some of the most intense and brutal persecution imaginable. And yet by 351 AD, approximately 350 million Romans worship Jesus on their knees as Lord. 51% of the Roman Empire calls Jesus Lord. That group of people under that immense persecution, stress, lack of organization, without the internet, with all their failings and faults, are full of joy and life and worship and salvation. And it is amazing. And you know what? I think we're ripe for that. I think we are ripe for an outpouring of the Spirit in such a way that salvation comes to many. Listen, you think those first-century believers who were hard-pressed on every side, persecuted, tortured, being burnt alive, not allowed to participate in Roman society, you reckon they were thinking, well, Rome will be ours in another hundred years. They could never have anticipated what was to come. But we've been given this remarkable revelation of what can happen I mean, we're here in Birmingham right now, worshipping Jesus. And the fact we're here today was birthed out of struggle, persecution, and pain in previous generations. We've got all the history, all the imagery, all the prophetic words, all the promises we could ever need to grasp. What can happen when God's people simply remain faithful, and keep persevering, refuse to be defeated, and stand resolutely in the victory of Jesus. And so, I'm desperate to call you into this. don't know about you, I don't want to simply maintain what we've got here. Personally, I don't want, no offence, but I don't want to settle just for this, and just gradually coast towards my imminent retirement, We've got an enemy who's having a field day right now. He's destroying marriages. He's holding people captive in shame. He's binding people in self-pity. He's blinding people to the joy that's found in daily walking with Jesus, turning prayer and Bible reading into a chore, deceiving people into thinking the church is a place for me to vent about my personal preferences rather than the bride of Christ to sacrifice everything for, and serve, and love, and cherish dearly. You know, the most terrifying thing for our enemy is for us to be awoken from our slumber and to start seeing things as they really are. And that is what the book of Revelation has the power to do for us. And so today, as we launch this series... I'm simply inviting you to come along for the journey. I've been here 25 years. I'm not interested in simply building a big church. I'm not in this to gather more people in the room on a Sunday so we can put on a nice, polished meeting and look good. I want to see men, women, and children raised up, ready and equipped to overcome I want to see us living in the good of the victory that Jesus has already won for us. And through it all, I want each and every one of us to know Jesus more, to love him more, to obey him more, and to give him more and more glory. In the words of verse 5 here, all glory to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. You are all invited into this. A life of giving glory to the one who has made a way for us to eternally enjoy more love and more freedom and more victory than we could ever imagine.